This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And it's Chris Crosby from Dallas, Texas. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's been a while. We've been trying to get hold of you and get you on this podcast, but you have had a lot of things going on in your life over the last year. Before we get started, could you make a quick intro of who Chris Crosby is and what do you do? Wow. Okay. Who is Chris Crosby? Boy, that's a complex question. But I currently am the CEO and founder of a company called Compass Data Centers. I was born in Norwalk, Connecticut, lived there for first eight or so years of my life, lived a couple of years in St. Louis, and then moved to Plano, Texas, back when it was pretty tiny. And grew up in the public school system, went to the University of Texas as a computer scientist, and then had a crazy journey into the world of the internet and infrastructure world that I live in today. You mean well, to tell me that it was not your dream from the second you cracked your eyes open to found a data center company? Well, when I was doing computer science, AI was a textbook. The concepts were there, but we didn't have the processing power for it. Sci-fi. It was sci-fi. So you make a very interesting point. I mean, you are probably less than 1% of the population that's in the data infrastructure space that actually went to college for this. Now, as a young man, how did you end up picking computer science as your subject of choice? Well, I always loved it. I remember my dad got me a PC junior one year and loved programming, loved messing with stuff, loved video games. Of course, back in those days, they were text and you typed in what you wanted to do. But it was really at the advent of personal computing was in my childhood and just always fascinated with it, enjoyed it. And then took some AP courses in high school on computer science and enjoyed doing that. I think I made the game of risk as my senior project one year, but I wish I told you it was some grand benevolent thing. I looked at the salaries of different things and I said, hey, that looks like a good one for a computer science person. And that's how I ended up there. University of Texas had a great program. It still has a great program and it was an amazing degree. I didn't understand it at the time. But it really taught me how to think and think at a system level. I never thought it was very practical while I was in the midst of it, but boy, did I learn a lot. By the way, that's probably the same reason Jewish grandmothers chose doctor and lawyer, not because they wanted their kids to make a difference, (laughs) but because they wanted them to be rich. It wasn't for the betterment of mankind. Were your parents in the technology space? Was that what drove it or what did your parents do? No, stay-at-home mom. And my dad, as he likes to say, he's a gunite guy. So he was in the pool business for a very long time. Started out Monsanto Corp. That's where we moved those couple of times uh, on the chemical division. And then he ran swimming pool business and a gunite company that actually does the shot concrete for swimming pools. So really interesting child. Plano and Dallas was a great place to grow up. It was super diverse. No one was from Dallas. Everybody came in as transplants as a place grew. And so it was a great environment to be around a lot of different people over a long period of time. How old were you when you moved to Plano? Third grade. How about your siblings, brothers, sisters, any of them in the tech space? I have a sister, Candace, and she's been a advertising maven for a very, very long time and led creative at a couple companies and just actually recently joined Compass to lead our marketing efforts. Look at you. The family business takes shape. I feel bad for her. It was not my idea. It was my chief revenue officer's idea, but we had always called her for help whenever we needed to get a contact or who could we talk to or whatever. And Steve Flagg, our longtime head of marketing, has, is retiring. Actually, we just had his retirement party last night. Anyways, it was a little bit awkward for me, recusing myself from the situation. I'm not a big nepotism guy, but man, is she talented. So It must have been awkward for her. Younger sister? Just under two years, yeah. So, but luckily, a different last name. So, right. <laughs> the secret is safe with us and everyone listening to this podcast. Exactly. 
So you get done with school with a computer science degree. What was your goal? What did you Where want did you to go do? to school? Were you in Texas when you went to yep. school? Hook them. Yeah. Hook them. Absolutely. So the University of Texas at Austin. I co-opted when I was in school. So I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. Of course, back then it was a little bit on the shady side of entrepreneurialism. I had a lot of different things that were working at various points of time. I started working for what was Bell Northern Research, which was the R&D arm for Northern Telecom, which no longer exists, but it's kind of the Bell Labs for Canada. We called it the Big Nerd Ranch, BNR. So I only spent five semesters at Texas and graduated a little early, but did two co-op sessions. And that was after my sophomore, second semester, and then after my junior, the second semester of the summer. And so did that. It was great. I got to learn about being in that work environment and kind of reframed what I wanted to do and really got me on a path as this neat environment, working in labs, working in this manufacturing and software type of environment. It was really, really great experience. It was growing like a weed. And that's where I ended up starting my first job was at Bell Northern Research as a member of scientific staff doing a C++ programming. Oh my God. A scientist, a scientist. I guess it's called It should be Dr. Science, right? Chris Crosby. Totally should be. I mean, that was before the internet, right? Yeah, so when I was in school was when Solaris 1.0 came out, HPUX 1.0 came out. We were using Tom's window manager on Unix. It was really at the advent of distributed computing. We also learned mainframe and punch cards and all that sort of stuff, but it's really the advent of distributed computing. And I've seen that pendulum swing from centralized computing to distributed computing, and it will swing again at various points in time. The one thing we can be certain of in technology is it's never this or that, it's a this and this. So we just keep growing on that front. So. Which means so, the data centers are everywhere, right? So I guess kudos yeah. to Compass. So was programming your core focus with an emphasis on networking or was it only programming? So in the R&D sector, it was in more on the tool side so that would help test tools and things along those lines. I developed a protocol converter tool that would test in-band and out-of-band signaling with my team. And we kind of sold that internally to test various products. And I remember going to MCI and Sprint and Global One at the time and these different companies and saying they could test our switching product, voice switching product, which... The international voice switching product was kind of where I cut my teeth. And that product, it was really interesting because we could take and break it at any point in time. I went to go sell it. The clients wanted to buy it, but the corporations said, no, 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 we're not giving that to clients. That's when I knew I wanted to switch to the commercial side. So I've been selling stuff for a long time. I've always been in that mode of left brain and right brain working. So then I moved to commercials. I think I had like nine different job titles, a little over eight years at, at Nortel. Um, and so left as a VP of sales. So is that an odd transition? You know, you go to school for computer science and I think people tend to, we talked about this on other podcasts where mm -hmm. the concept of a salesperson is denigrated because of I don't know, when I was growing up, it was Three's Company, right? You had the upstairs neighbor that was the used car salesman and the slimy salespeople. Was that an odd transition? Did you ever look at yourself as a salesperson or did you not really think of sales as something that was on the opposite side of, say, your engineering or technology or science background? It's funny, I'll relay a story from my dad. He went toward the school at one point. He was looking around and he sees all these different faces and different people from all over. And he's like, why are you doing that? Like, what are you doing? Nobody's like you and this and that. And I go, dad... I can talk about it though. Like I can relate it to other people. I can put things into layman's terms. And for me, that technical background was so critical. And as a computer scientist, you're a system level thinker. So I don't go into the weeds like the engineers do, but I can look at things like a black box and what the inputs and the outputs are and assemble it into a solution. And being able to communicate that to people has been really valuable for me. But I've always loved the humanities as well. I've loved history and it's a little bit of an odd, I'm an odd duck, that's for sure when it comes to some of those things. But I think we just me, got the title. Seems... We just got the title of the podcast, An Odd Duck. The Odd Duck, yeah. There you go. Quack, quack. 
But no, it's been an interesting journey. I would tell you that I think that's a little bit of that entrepreneurial bent too, is I get bored in something and then I want to go do something else and learn something else. And learning things is where I really get a lot of pleasure of, of getting to know new things. So when I left Nortel, I was like, look, I don't know the world of finance. So I know this merchant banking guy and I'm going to go do that. And I'm going to go learn merchant banking. And I got a series seven and a 27 and it was 2001. Not a great year to do that. <laughs> the world's coming to an end. <laughs> I love it hit and I recognize, wow, I don't have any income and it won't have any income. And so then I called up one of the guys I used to sell to at Nortel and I said, hey, Jim, as Jim Trout. And I said, hey, Jim, you just joined those Carlisle guys. What became, it was called Carlisle Realty Group West. And you don't know anything about what these clients are doing. And you took this CEO job. I can help you. How about I write a marketing and sales plan for you? And that was the genesis of getting into telecom and data center real estate. And that's how I got into it because every door that closes creates a new door that opens if you're willing to walk through it. So how was that learning experience? Of course, you're a very smart individual. How was that learning experience from networks to coming to real estate? So I got to tell you, I always say to be successful, you have to have ability, you have to have passion, you have to have opportunity. Of those three opportunities in the and boy, did I have an opportunity. I'm negotiating bankruptcies of telecom companies that I sold to. I cut my teeth in real estate, getting to deal with the worst part of real estate. And I think we took the NOI at one Wilshire building in LA from 12 million to 14.1 million during that year, because knowing what clients did, if they wanted to reject a lease, it was like, well, actually, yeah, most of your revenue runs through this building, XYZ Telecom, so no problem. And I'm sure somebody else will take it. And then they'd be like, whoa, wait, wait a second. We'll extend the term and raise the rate. And then similarly, when we didn't have, when we knew that they weren't going to do something, we we're going to reject it. And we turned those into cool rooms or meet me room expansions. And these are very early days of things. And then of course, my too big for my britches gets fired because I'm a smart ass. So a year into that, I get fired uh, right before Christmas. And that started what became folded into become Digital Realty Trust, started a company called Preferian, which worked with a group of GI partners, which was Rick Magnuson and Mike Faust. And Chris Kenny in the original timeframes and that turned into Digital Realty Trust, but we were kind of the operating arm for that business before pre-IBO. Very nice. So you were the entrepreneur of the year in 2023. Could you expand on that? I mean, that's a massive award. Where do you think you get your entrepreneur mindset and thinking? Well, one thing is an entrepreneur without a team is nothing. And I would say that the reason why I won the award is not because of me. I just, I'm blessed to be the leader of the team I've got and what I've learned over the years around how you surround yourself with diverse personalities and thinking and backgrounds and people that push and challenge you really creates the best of the best. And that's what we have tried to do at Compass. And as far as the entrepreneur, I think it's a little bit of a screw loose. I think you have to have a little bit of a screw loose. You're sitting in a job that you're doing really well at. Like, hey, I'm really bored. I'm going to go try this or wow, I was a computer scientist. Now I'm going to go into sales. So I think it's the same people that got in a boat and go, hey, we're going to go to the new world or we're going to get a covered wagon to go out West. Like many immigrants today do. That's I think why the United States has as many entrepreneurs as we have, is we've got a lot of blood that has that little bit of a screw loose. I think most people from the outside looking in would see Chris Crosby, CEO of Compass, this unbelievable, successful thought leader, pioneer in our industry, and not necessarily recognize that even you got knocked down and were too big for your britches. So you get fired from Carlisle. What is that experience like? Is that like incredibly dejecting? Were you surprised to hear it? Was it like, oh my God, what have I done? Maybe I've made poor choices, or do you immediately say, I'm going to double down. I know how this went and learn from that experience. At 28, 29 years old, you're indignant. <laughs> Three of those guys, so on and so forth. I look back at it and I just go, wow, the way I delivered that message, that could have been a little bit more effective the way that I delivered it. Would this Chris Crosby have fired that Chris Crosby? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> 
a company full of Chris Crosby's is a dumpster fire. Let me just make sure that that's clear. So I am a big believer. Our culture is everything at Compass. That is why we've had the success that we've had. And what I would say is part of our culture is we believe failures on the path to success. I believe that shit is the best fertilizer. The good Lord made it the best fertilizer for a reason. And all of my growth personally and professionally has come through failure. It hasn't come through success. And if you can't embrace failure and you can't allow it to occur, I think you really struggle in life. There's a thing in today's society where this everything has to be right and everything has to be perfect. And we hide those flaws and those faults. And I think you really miss opportunity for growth when you do that. If you embrace it, you look at it, you reflect on it. And there's a reason why the windshield is a lot bigger than the rear view mirror. You don't have to look at it for long, but you do need to learn from it. And I think those opportunities to learn from things, it's what makes a career, it's what makes a life, it makes a better thing. We don't get much other than through bad things. And that's when we learn as human beings. So as an individual, what was your turning point where you're like, okay, I'm the new Chris Crosby and this is the direction I'm pursuing. And is it a moment in time or is it a, an evolution? It's an evolution. I remember at Digital, we had a group come in to help us with some strategic direction. And I'm the young guy, I'm the non-MBA, the Ivy League guys on the board and the Stanford folks, whatever. And I went to the public school kind of thing. And I remember being in the meeting and I would always ask for feedback. Hey, how'd I do? How'd I do? Should I ask him the coach leader, anything I should do better? Like soliciting a feedback. And I remember being in one of those and I eviscerated one of the, my colleagues um, and did the full drawn and quarter Braveheart kind of thing uh, verbal. That sick, guilty pleasure that we have when we do the things that we're not supposed to be doing that we like to do. And I remember walking outside, he comes up, he goes, hey, you always ask me for feedback. And yeah, I said, yeah, I know I'm going to apologize right now for it. But anyways, through that, he recommended a coach. And so I got a life coach this back in 2006 and really started my journey of trying to self-improve. One thing about me, once I decide on something, I don't check the water, I dive in. So Dove in head first and trusted it. I was skeptical, but I was willing to try it. So it started a journey. I really view it as a lifelong journey. It's the older you get, the less certain you are of anything. And so many things when you're young, you make it a morality issue of right and wrong. And it's not, there's better and worse. We're not murdering people. There's no right way to do a data center. There's no wrong way to do it. There might be better and worse ways, but so many things we make into that morality issue. So I think it's a journey and it's frustrating to say, but if I was a young self, I'd be always like, man, how come those folks that just because they know each other doesn't mean that why are they doing deals together or doing those sorts of, well, actually it's about trust and it's about wisdom and knowing that you're not going to get let down by folks because the older you get, the more you see those sorts of things. And as that wisdom grows, if it's with humility, then you can keep learning and you can keep growing. And now I would say my lifelong goal is to not learn any more wisdom because those scars are really expensive. I want to paint it from other people. I think the one thing that I think is so real in that whole thing, if you weave it in and out, is that you asked for feedback when you knew you did well. But the one time you eviscerated was the one time you didn't specifically request feedback, which I find myself doing constantly. Like I'm always looking for that self-gratification, like tell me I did well, because yeah. I know I did well, as opposed to tell me I did that wrong. I'm going to go apologize. I think just accepting yourself for who you are is a journey in life and being okay with it. There are things that I'm great at. There's things I'm good at. There's things I'm not good at. And I don't spend any time in the third category anymore. I surround myself with people that can do that third category. And I'm trying to get from good to great in the other categories, but I don't want to spend time on, I'm okay with myself. I'm okay with the flaws that I have. Doesn't mean I don't wish people didn't see it different. Doesn't mean I don't have adaptation tools and frameworks that help me to interact with folks. But I think that part of humility is just accept yourself. It's okay. It's a part of you. What is it that we always say? The imperfection is the perfection. Yeah. Let the imperfection be your perfection. So you leave digital, you start Compass. Yep. What led you to doing that? It's a journey. We had a strategy at digital and 
it's a great strategy and it's killed it and it's done extremely well. And I really love organic growth and I love building and doing that. I would say I'm not good at acquisitions and integration and talk about a category that not good at. I mean, we've done very well with the root, root acquisition that we did, but there's occasional exceptions. Uh, most of that's due to AJ and his team, as opposed to what I would say we did. But I think just this desire, we did so much building. I think 2007 was 750 million, which back then was a lot. 2008 was a billion in development, but we were doing a lot of brownfield stuff, never really got to focus on the building. And the world I came from in manufacturing and software was done quite different. When I got into design and construction in this world, I listened and I said, okay, well, this is how this is done. We brought some innovation in terms of how to create pod sizes and things along those lines, but never really challenged the way that the industry was done. And the opportunity to get to do that was beckoning me in terms of, I really wanted to shake a tightly coupled supply chain a manufacturing type of approach and try to do that within the data center space, thinking that it's going to be at a scale level where that's going to be necessary. And the inefficiencies, I think design and construction is the only industry vertical of the 12 verticals from the Department of Labor that has negative productivity in the last 75 years. Everything else has increased productivity, but that segment. And so how do you think differently? So we're not trying to be better than other people. We're just trying to do some things differently than the rest of the market does. And it's been a journey, plenty of failures, and you're at the point where you keep learning and keep improving and you get to the point that where we're at right now. I love the, I could just see, I hear a conversation like, dad, I think we need to make the next data center at Ogunite. Do you have a good contact for me? To... <laughs> it's funny. My dad was the one that really encouraged me to start the business. He's like, Chris, you're starting these companies or you're working these companies with other people. Like you need to just do one. I both thank him and regret that. He's yeah. Like, How could you do this to me, dad? <laughs> yeah. I want you to know, like when your friends that have small children encourage you to have children, you just want me to share in your pain. That's all right. it is. You want someone to commiserate with. I mean, this is awful. Here, try this. <laughs> right. Exactly. You got to smell this. You've never smelled anything so bad. I think there's a concept of this organic versus inorganic growth that is, I totally appreciated in terms of like company culture and zeitgeist and soul, the soul of a company that you found is really difficult to integrate with a different company that you obtained through acquisition. And certainly if you are the acquired but can you speak to some of that? Because I think for the people in the audience that might not have been a part of an acquisition or any kind of M&A activity, that concept of organic versus inorganic might be foreign to them. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, organic growth is where you're kind of building it yourself. You're doing it yourself. You're creating the products or the services, and then you're selling it yourself. And inorganic growth, which is another way to grow, is to buy other businesses and then integrate them into your business. And so you, you can buy market share companies or product lines or things along those lines. And both are great. Neither one's bad. I mean, if you look at many companies are built via acquisition and there's a lot less that are built organically. It's difficult to build organically. You build organic with the goal of being acquired, right? The goal is to exit that's at some point. True. Traditional. That's true. That's the traditional model is build the exit. And if you do build the last, you're building a legacy brand and you're really thinking about things differently and you're making different decisions. And that does include sacrifice because you're going to sacrifice the now for tomorrow's benefit. And it is a different mindset. I'll tell you that if I look back, I would have had a much easier road early if I wouldn't have been so stubborn on the organic and had bought some revenue to help cover the base early. But I don't have regrets, I guess. It would be difficult to say in the position that we're at right now because it all teaches you stuff. I wasn't a best startup CEO. I'm much more comfortable on this growth stage than I am in those early days. I always had the issue of looking at stuff of, was it scalable? And so saying no to things, if it's scalable, but when you don't exist, when you're nothing, like 
why are you worried about that in retrospect? But that journey on organic growth to create, as Jim Collins calls it, the flywheel, right? Where you've got something that builds on itself and it takes time. Our business is, Peter Thiel calls it the different types of monopolies that are out there. And ours is one, we tried to model it much more like an Apple or a Tesla. Like we're not doing any one thing great, but it's the integration of all the things and doing them well from supply chain to design, to capital markets, to sales, to mark, you know, how we do all of those things a little differently is what we're trying to do to separate ourselves from our competition and provide some product leadership to our client base. Last question on this organic versus inorganic. I'm trapped on this thing. Do you find it difficult with capital markets and bringing in investors and, and that like to resist it? Do you have to pitch them on the idea of doing things organically, methodically, kind of your way to build your brand versus the kind of the fast trajectory that investors tend to want to achieve their returns, which sometimes forces your hand into transactions that you might not otherwise get behind? Yeah, I think it's all about the investment thesis that you're selling and then what they then sell to their investment committee. But we've had the fortunate nature of having Ontario teachers in for a long time. They've been in since the end of 2016. They're a very long-term thinker. So having them as a partner has been great. I think our Redbird was a good partner for us with a long-term thinking plan. So I think as long as you get alignment there, you're fine. And I think we've got good alignment now. Teachers is still in, but now Brookfield's come in and good alignment with building out a business that we think has a lot of legs. I mean, I think there's a real opportunity. And I think the most exciting thing is seeing the transformation since we do have an organic model to where we want to own these assets forever. That is something that we want to do. And that leads to better sustainability. It leads to better decision-making, right? It leads to the ability to think about how we're going to do refreshes in the future. How is this stuff going to work long time, long term? And that's why we have our campus style approach. And we're really building, if you look at the economies and what it takes for economic growth, it's traditionally just been clean water and electricity. Now you got to add data into that and we get to be at the forefront of that, which is there's nothing more exciting than thinking about we're making things that are going to last generations and really drive economies and the places that have them are going to do very well and the places that don't are going to struggle. Right. And I think that's Absolutely. what people miss, right? That notion mm -hmm. of being stewards of our environment in general. And I think the data center industry, and we've seen it over and over again, gets painted we talked about this yesterday briefly, right, with this kind of negative environmental uh, impact. But if you start focusing on the long-term nature and the legacy of what we're trying to build, then we're all aligned in terms of making sure that these assets are as sustainable as can be. And when you look at it over the past 10 years, 65% of all renewables been for data centers, all renewable generation worldwide. Crazy number, crazy percentages. And now I look at what we're doing and we're buying plots of land and easements and putting up transmission lines and building substations and turning it back to the utility. We're part of the refabric, making the new fabric of the grids worldwide. Um, without private investment, that's not going to happen. And that's not on the back of the consumers. We're spending those dollars. We're making those investments and we turn it back over. And without the private sector investment, especially with the regulatory environment being and, and utility environment, which are difficult environments to work within and, and they've got rules that they have to play by or the utilities have rules and regulators are behind on things and you've got electrification of home you've got electrification of vehicles you've got replanting of manufacturing and fab and then you've got cloud and now you add ai into the mix and at least by my count ai alone is like 30 gigawatts worth of new capacity that's out that needs to be built and done and where's that going to happen it's going to happen from data centers because we can spend that type of capital to provide to our clients to give them what they need and that's something that we're going to be the ones that are helping to build those transmission lines and those substations and those generation plants and yeah we need a much better pr firm though as an industry than what we have right now and that's not to say that everybody does things the right way 
I don't mean that by any stretch, but if you're in a built to last mentality, I think it absolutely are the right people that are doing those things. Yeah. So let's conversation a bit into the people piece. I mean, the industry is growing bananas. It's really become a utility model, like you said. Think um, of that number yeah. you just said, with the gigawatts, gigawatts and gigawatts, yes. 30 exactly. gigawatts. It's like yeah. back to the future was small thinking, right? With the flux capacitor. So having said that, when we look at the human capital deficit that we're getting ready for, about 40, 45% of the existing workforce has been in the space for 25 plus years, which means the next five years, we're going to have a retirement party every day of the week, not accounting for people that are older and have been in the space for maybe five, 10 years or so. That's a significant number. We're not getting enough younger people into the space. How do you envision solving the challenge of human capital as the industry is growing at the rapid pace that it is? And how do you guys handle it now other than hiring your sisters? I assume you're out of siblings at this point to, to cover the <laughs> retirement parties. Look, you have to think at a system level on this in order to do it well. And this is something that we have thought about from day one. So we're big believers in the Pareto principle here at Compass and the 80-20 rule. And how do you get 80 percenters to do 20 percent or more? You have to design processes and systems that allow that to occur. And newbies, new people in it are always going to be 80 percenters. So rather than trying to look for, and by the way, this is the same way how you get diverse employees. People talk about all this stuff. They don't do anything, um, but mm -hmm. you, you change the rules. You change the game. And the way how you change the game, I'll use a couple examples. When you write a job description, talk about behaviors. Don't talk about years of experience. That's a very simple one. You want to get different genders in the workforce. Don't do number of years of experience. That is necessary. Talk about some of the skill sets that are needed and the behaviors that are needed. You want to promote people, have it be part of your employee review that you actually ask people what they'd like to do. Because otherwise, 80% of men will tell you what they want to do. Western men, 80% of Western men will tell you what they want to do. And 20% of them won't. But if you ask on the flip side, 80% of women won't tell you what they want to do. So you got to ask. Those are two very simple ways. But when we think about bringing new people in the workforce, that's one of our favorite things here at Compass. For construction management, we created a policy with very, very prescriptive, we call it the Compass Program, uh, what we want junior construction managers to do. And it's a guide and it's a prescriptive guide. And as a result of that, we have 100% female construction managers, women who expressed interest to get into construction in North America, where that's our percentage. And what do you need? I just need you to express an interest that you want to be here. We're going to have a program that you're going to follow. That's going to help you into that. We're looking to do the same thing because of the system level. Think of Southwest Airlines, the old Southwest Airlines with Herb Kelleher, same airplane, same location, all of those same parts and pieces, mechanics. You can work on anything. Our power centers, our, our data centers, while they have mass customization to meet our client needs, they're all the same. And so now we get to do that on operations as well. We've been bringing in a lot of veterans with no experience. What do they know how to do? They know how to do procedures and follow them to a T. I like create models where you don't need experience, create models where experience actually hurts you. I always love the story of the U.S. Marine Corps. They ask all the new recruits. I know this through anecdote. I don't know it through personal experience, but they ask all the new recruits if they've ever shot a rifle before. And if you say yes, you go to the start over area. And if you say no, you go to the advanced area because you don't have bad habits. And so we really view ourselves as a feeder system at Compass. We can't promote everybody all the way through the structure, but we've had a lot of folks that have gotten through, they've made it to a junior construction manager, ready to make that next step to a senior. We don't have that role for them, but they can go out and they can contribute now in industry. And we want that feeder system through our operations staff, through our construction staff. It's just very, very important to us. And the other thing to it, and this has been consistent since my time at Digital, we don't always want people that have been in the industry for a long time. I want different of thought, background, and opinion, and 
oh, wow, you worked at Pepsi and you did supply chain at Pepsi. Wow, that's great. We could learn some stuff from you. I don't need you to have experience on everything. How can we get the best out of things if we have all one train of thought on everything? So that's the way we think about it at Compass. And it's really, really key to us that we're bringing women into this space, bringing vets into this space, bringing diversity into space, bringing people that just want to express an interest to come into it. Hire interns from all walks of life. Like, how do we get you into our space? Because we need it. And we really feel like we can contribute by helping with that first level of training and, and getting people productive in the space. Someone should start a foundation whose mission it is to bring people from all walks of life into the space. I don't know who, I can't put my finger on it, but someone should really start that. I think in general, people think of the concept of diversity with the lowest possible hanging fruit, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of race, diversity of gender. But the thing that we always harp on and the thing that you just touched on is the concept of diversity of thought, diversity of lived experience is so valuable you know, socioeconomically and otherwise, if we as an industry are going to continue to create solutions and create methodologies that resonate globally, that is what will allow us to paint our legacy is to make sure that we are staffed with these diversity of lived experiences, which is just awesome to hear, to hear you say it. Look, scientifically, first thing, right? Personality flows through all everywhere, right? So we do personality tests with everybody. We use a disc system. That's our first form of diversity. After that, we believe gender to be the second form of diversity in terms of things. And then what's your background is, is really the next one. There's East, West, there's all of these other things. But I think the frustrating thing for me with DEI, it's ticking boxes for so many people, as opposed to it being like, there's so much business value. Like when we put females into construction trailers, all right, eight out of 10 women are going to be much better at listening than men. All right. And so our insight, it's what we gain, what we get, just leveraging natural differences to the benefit of the business is if you're not doing that as a leader, like that's just crazy to me. Who wants groupthink? Who wants everything to be the same? I don't understand when people go down that path or they're just taking a buy. Oh, I, you know what? I don't have enough women in my thing. I'm going to hire a woman. Like, what is that? I don't understand that. Yeah. So it's the old Stephen Colbert, the one picture with the arm around and the pointing. Look, look, I have one. I have a woman. All done. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely a phenomenal story. I'm glad that you are doing it. You're not just talking about it. You're taking those corrective action steps. Now, in your experience, as we come to a close here, uh, a couple of questions that I would love for you to answer. You've been in the data infrastructure space for a couple of decades. Not that I'm aging you, Chris, but uh, where do you see 24, 25 to be? I mean, what technologies should the young generation be looking at to make that investment of education and even or to explore that as a potential career path? Well, I don't think you could get into a better space than the infrastructure space from a longevity of career and opportunity to do different things. When I started the SMU master's program on data center systems engineering a few years back, I called it the humility degree because what we wanted was we wanted people to just go experience a bunch of different things because to be successful in the space, like you can know so many different areas, like computer science, to networking, to hardware, to mechanical, electrical, to real estate, to capital market, like it touches all of these things and it touches our lives every single day. There is no shortage of growth within this space. And with that, I mentioned that 30 gigawatts, you talk about that type of capacity. It's going to take years and years and years to develop. And all of these things, the amount of innovation and creativity that's going to be necessary to come up with new ways and new ideas and new ways of doing things and to match hundred year asset, like we're doing with data centers with three to five year assets with compute. How do you do those sorts of things? Right. And how do you make things last? How do you, so the level of creativity, 
the level of problem solving, the level of fun of just scale and investment. I mean, there's never been an investment quantum like this before. The amount of money that's going into building out this infrastructure to make economies run. So look, all I would say is our space is you can touch all of it. You can touch one portion of it. If you're in it, if you're even holding on to any portion of it, it's growing and you're going to have opportunity. And there's nothing better than growth. I've been fortunate. This is my third growth company. My God, is growth fun. It's so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're in the data rush era, right? And the future is now. It's just beginning. Based on your experiences and all these life lessons and the life coach, what would be a couple of those key takeaways that you would say totally transformed your life and that you would tell the young Chris Crosby? I'll tell two things. Number one is check yourself. Like, don't take yourself so seriously. Everybody takes themselves too seriously nowadays. You put your pants on just like everybody else. Everybody has different walks of life. Don't assume about other people and you can read their mind and why they're doing things or not doing things. That's number one. It's, it's just check yourself. Have some. Don't you dare say we brush our hair one strand at a time. I don't want to get didn't. that. That's the only part. <laughs> right. That's the only part I heard. <laughs> yeah. We got, we got that part working. The rest of the body's breaking down, but uh, <laughs> hair growing is fine. Um, and then the second one is just be curious, ask questions. And that does take vulnerability. And I think in today's society, it's difficult to just be genuinely curious, asking why, really, how come? Be curious and dig a little bit deeper. Don't settle at the one why, like dig a little deeper and be curious. And the people that have those two things, that lifelong learning and the humility to know that they can always be better and they can always improve, I think you just walk around happier. And those two things took me time to figure out instead of proving myself all the time, having to be right, whatever that means on things. And I think those two elements of, of keeping that lifelong curiosity for learning and being humble about it, not apologetic for what, but just humble about it. It's okay. I had these crazy opportunities in my life to go down this path. And yeah, I took advantage of it, but I also didn't create those. Wow. I think the old, Amazing. I think the old, the old Ted Lasso line of be curious, not judgmental. It's an incredible message that I think will certainly resonate. Wonderful. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been phenomenal and lovely to spend time with you. I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days soon again. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing as well as your continued support.